your Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. That is where we're going to be this morning. And man, I tell you what, if you've been with us in the Come and Listen series, I've, I've enjoyed it just from a study standpoint, going back into Nehemiah. Uh, I think I, I preached it back in 2013 or 2012. Did I just hear a phone through our entire system? Technology, it gets you sometimes. But I remember preaching this, and every time, it's like when, when we talk about the, the Word of God and what, what the Word of God says about itself is that it's living and active. And it is. It really it changes um, in terms of how it approaches the, where you are in life. It never changes in terms of the, the message of faithfulness. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But um, how it can land in a place like in 2023... Uh, in the ways that it does is pretty powerful. And I was reading this passage, and it made me um, think about just time going by because I had, I had done it in 2013. And you know, this time of year is graduation time of year, um, and your devices are all, I don't anybody get memories on your devices. I mean, like if you've got Google, the three people that have an Android phone in here, um, or you have an iPhone, I'm kidding, there must be a lot of Android people because they didn't think that was very funny. Um, <laughs> But you get memories, right? You get like this, you know, do you remember this date seven years ago or this date 10 years ago? And you see like, and one of them popped up and it was, uh, um, one of my kids was really young, uh, actually it was Abe, and remembering him transitioning from one grade to another. And at the end of the school year, uh, that particular year, he had, he had taken a, had a journal that they journaled every day about life stuff. You know, he was like six or seven years old. And, you know, you, that, which is very cute, um, but you're thinking a teacher's going to read that and you never know what your kid's going to write down or what he's going to recount from what happens at home uh, or what happens out in the world, in the field, you know, when you're at war with your kids, uh, what they're going to scribble in their journal. And A wrote something pretty interesting uh, in his journal. I don't know. It makes me laugh. He says, one time I was lost in goodwill. <laughs> that right there is enough. Oh, you've got it up there. I wasn't lost for a long time. But there was tears in my eyes. <laughs> now, my wife posted this bravely, and you can see what she said. He must have been with an aunt. Um, she is funny. And I, it just made me think, you know, that, my, that age of my kids has gone by. Like, they're, you know, Abe is going to be a senior. Um, other two are in college. And, um, but you, they're, they're just, I do remember that. Like all of my kids at one time or another, maybe Ella never got lost, but uh, the boys definitely, the, the proneness to wander is there. And there's actually, there's something in the brain uh, that it's being developed in terms of, you know, the acuteness of location, all of those things when it comes to wandering. And I looked it up, you know, child's, their maturity level helps them when it comes to wandering. Now, some kids, it takes a little bit longer than others. And then there's other kids that never wander just out of fear. They're like locked on. You see them, probably saw some this morning, just locked onto mom's leg. Like, don't you detach yourself from me. They are anchored in uh, for all of life and they never get lost. They would never get lost in goodwill. Uh, but there's a reason that kids wander, and I was looking, looking this up, and it's the obvious stuff. You know, children tend to wander, especially when they're young. Uh, it has to do with their, you know, their brain development. The first one is distraction. Something looks more fun than where they are. Can you imagine that, right? Something looks more fun than where they are. And the, the other one is just simply un unawareness of being lost, like not realizing you're not where you were before. I mean, it's just simple things in terms of maturity. And then I read the, the simple stuff, how to prevent it. And this made me laugh, but it also made me think about where we're headed in Nehemiah chapter 13, how to prevent it. Number one in the list was supervision. <laughs> Imagine that. Somebody needs to watch them, especially when they're in goodwill. 
Um, the other one is information, how to stay where you are, like warnings, like stranger danger, all the stuff, getting more information. Um, the third one was have an identity marker, like identifiable clothing or markers so that, that, that like you can find them or other people know that you're not where you're supposed to be. We need to get you to, back to your mom. We need to get you to the information desk so we can get on the loudspeaker and tell everybody, um, you know, go to aisle seven or the customer service desk. Your kid is lost in Publix or Goodwill. Um, and then a location anchor, like a meeting place, somewhere to circle back, to get bearing, to see, again, the people that, that know and love you. Like having a meeting place, telling them, hey, if you get lost, if things go off the rails, then this is where you go back to. You know how to get here. We're going to go through the process. This is how you find your way back home. And I was thinking about all four of these things and thinking about who God is and how he sees us. And I said last week that he never stops seeing us as children. And now when I think about our tendency to be the people that are prone to wander, I mean, I think about my own heart, the, the, the distraction that pulls me away from home. And when I say home, I mean my, my relationship with God, the place where I'm, I'm awake and alive to the, the idea that I'm in Christ, like, like Dave was talking about, like Austin was talking about, like we, we come together as the, the body of Christ and we're, we're anchored here, even in the, our, our location finder. This is our anchored location here at Ocean City Church, that we need this to, to reset our heart, to reset us and go, okay, this is where people recognize me and know, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where things are supposed to be. But we all get distracted and all of a sudden we find ourselves wandering from home. We all need identity markers, and certainly we all need supervision. And as I, I was reading this passage and thinking about the idea that we're all prone to wander, the, the things that came to the surface just kind of hit me personally. Because I, I don't think any of us in the room could say, well, I never wander. Like I, and maybe you're on the, the, you know, the religious side of like you never make any mistakes and you all... You know, you always get it, get it right. Well, uh, you're going you're gonna to find that even, even in our religious tone, uh, sometimes as church people, as moral people, we tend to wander away from what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. So if you got your Bible in Nehemiah chapter 13, now this is, you know, we've been celebrating. It's been a lot of smiles. There's been a lot of laughter. But Nehemiah chapter 13, I don't mean to be a downer, but it doesn't go well. Like, it's, it's just, I mean, the guy gets pretty angry. Um, he pulls people's beards out and beats people. Um, and, you know, I mean, we were thinking about adding that to our church covenant, um, but we're not. Uh, but it was in theirs, apparently, because Nehemiah was the dude that was kind of in charge. Like, he, was, he wasn't the priest, but he came back in after being governor for a long time. And uh, just even historically looking at where, you know, last week, we kind of got to that place of celebration. Like, they, they had... This seven-day celebration, the wall was finally built. If you hadn't been with us, it's like Jerusalem's walls were in disarray. Nehemiah was commissioned to come by Artaxerxes and help rebuild the wall to create a safe anchor point, a safe zone for the Jewish people to have their home back, their temple back, to get back to this monotheistic, like we're going to worship one God. Now, there was a lot of people that didn't like that. They were in a pagan world. They, that had been the Babylonian Empire for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then the Persian Empire. So those people didn't necessarily want that. They wanted to do the things that they wanted to do. They wanted to live the way that they wanted to live. So there was lots of opposition as they were, they were building the wall. But miraculously, it was done in 52 days. And they bring people together. They read the word of God 
for the first time in many years. They have a feast that they hadn't had in over a thousand years, and people wept, celebrated, they put up tents. It was like, you know, the old school Woodstock Jesus revolutionary kind of thing that's happening, right? They just had a big, big party. Now, We've got Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah ends up going back. If, if you don't remember in, in chapter 1, he promised Artaxerxes, the, uh, the king, that he would go back. After the, the wall is built, after he settles things and gets things in the zone that they're supposed to be, I'll come back and I will serve as cupbearer. So he was there for, you know, the commentary says probably around 10 to 12 years he was there in Jerusalem. And then he goes back. And he goes back for probably, most commentary says several years. Some say it had to at least be about 18 months to two years. But most people that are in, you know, read this passage say it was multiple years. So he was gone for a while. And then he comes back and everything was good when he left. He had set reforms in place that we're not going to stray again from home. We're not going to wander. We've been doing this over and over again. We just read the law, which is stories of us leaving God and finding out that it's not great to be away from home. Things, bad things happen. God extended mercy and we'd come back. We, we read this whole cycle. So certainly it won't happen again. We're going to put these reforms in place. They even signed what? Remember last week? A covenant, a contract that they would they would stick to this whole thing. Now he comes back and you can imagine things aren't the way that they should be. Now it starts off at the very beginning of this passage. And I'm not, I'm not skipping. Y'all know that I don't skip things because they're, they're difficult. <laughs> the, first, the first section is talking about how they had separated themselves from all the foreigners. And they, there was this whole kind of, and, and the rest starting in verse four is kind of a recap. It's like, we got to this place where we had to completely separate ourselves from everybody around us. All the Jews in one place, everybody else on the outside. You couldn't come into the temple. You couldn't come into the outer courts. We, we, had, to, we had to put a hard line down. And then he goes back and recounts and says, let me, let me explain why we had to do this. And things don't get easy from here. So in verse 4, it says, now before this. So he's saying, now before we had to do all this separation, before we had to take all the foreigners and boot them out, this is what happened. He said, now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah. Now, if you remember, Tobiah was the one that was in opposition to the wall. Him and his three, three dudes, they were just not, not happy about the whole thing, right? They were not into what was happening. They wanted their culture that had been going on for hundreds of years to be maintained. They knew that if this wall was built, they knew that if the temple you know, came together the way that it came together, then all of a sudden the way, their way of life, um, their wealth, their influence would go away. So they opposed it. So that's who Tobiah was. So Elisha the priest was related to Tobiah. And so he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, the wine, the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites. So the, the priests, the worship leaders, the Levites, the singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So what's happening here is Tobiah, the enemy of God, the enemy of the things of God, the enemy of Nehemiah, the enemy of the people of God, has now moved into the temple. And he's taken over a room that was meant for the precious things of God. Okay? So you can start to get the, the blood boil that probably is going to happen when Nehemiah rolls in. Right? So he continues to recount. He says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. And he's making sure, hey, I just want to let you know, this junk didn't happen on my watch. 
right? He's like, it's not happening while I'm there. He says, for in the, the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Now, it says king of Babylon. Some of you that are historians, you know the transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. Why, why were they saying Babylon? Just for those of you that will stumble on that and you won't be able to think about anything else. They still called it Babylon. Like, even though Persia had taken over, it was still the Babylonian Empire. It was still called that in many references in Scripture and in history. It was Babylon. Susa was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. So just in case you got stuck on that, like King of Babylon, I thought this is Persia. Where is this? Where's the timeline? We're still in the same timeline, Persian Empire. So we went back to the king. And after some time, I asked for leave of the king. So that's the gap that I was talking about. The you know, year, minimum a year and a half, most likely he had been back. He had been there for several years. Um, and he came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was, again, we talked about this, very angry. And you, now here's what I notice here. There's no pause. Do you remember when we talked about the pause? He's like, hmm, let's take a moment. Let's think about what we're getting ready to do. No pause. So what happens when there's no pause? I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, right? <laughs> then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber. I brought Back there, the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, the, the rest of this, this chapter, you'll see this progression of him discovering just how far the people of God had wandered over these few years while he was gone. Like they, they, I don't think they fully realize. I mean, you almost get the sense like he's walking around all of Jerusalem. He, he goes in and he sees what's happened with Elisha, the guy that he puts in charge and says, I mean, the, the worst of the worst in his mind, he's like, the guy that was trying to kill me while we were building the wall, you've let move in, not into my house, but into the house of God. Like, I mean, he, in, in some ways, his reaction to throwing all the stuff out in the street, I mean, if you've ever, you know, been somebody that's owned a rental property and had somebody that's not been great uh, and not paid the rent, I have done, done the rental property thing. Um, there is a moment where you begin to just take the stuff and just throw it out at the street. Uh, and that's, that's what, what happened. I mean, there was this, this explosion. And then he begins to move around and he realizes there's this abuse of the Sabbath. Like, there, it was okay in the outer courts to have a market. There was something beautiful about the, the way that the outer, outer courts worked. But on the Sabbath, you couldn't have anybody, like, selling goods moving stuff in, you know, there was no shipments, there was no distribution, there was no supply chain rolling into the temple on the Sabbath. The doors were shut and you kept it holy, just like God said in his commandment. Like that was not what was going to happen. So he begins to see that they had just completely gone off the rails and said, we're going to do church the way that we want to do church. The things that used to matter slowly didn't matter anymore. And the things that, that God really didn't want to be a part of temple worship or a part of even their society or their culture started to matter for them. So they, they moved things out that mattered greatly to God. And slowly, Tobiah and a disruption of the Sabbath moved in. And I, I started to think, that's, it's, it's one of those things, we don't realize it, but, but we invite sometimes, over time, our, our wandering is not necessarily like a physical wandering. We've wandered away. I know when we think about the prodigal son or we think about a wayward child, we think about them going off and just not obeying God and doing their own thing, and we, we don't see them. But these people were visible. They were around. They were still going to church. It's just 
all of a sudden they had invited the enemy into their world. They had invited sin into their world. And slowly but surely, the enemy's there and he's in the house. And I'll just even as before we even start, we're going to dig into the question. We're all prone to wander. Why? Three, three ways that we, we find ourselves drifting. But what have we slowly invited into our household? I mean, I would ask that question. I mean, I had to when I was reading this. I was like, what version of Tobiah do I have in my world? What has slowly crept in over time that didn't seem like a big deal in the very beginning, but now has become kind of usual suspect in my life? And maybe it's something that nobody else knows about, but you're like, hey, you know what, I'm just going to deal with this until Jesus comes back and cleanses the world and, and we can sing Maranatha, you know? Uh, we just love it. You know, he's here and we're glad, but I'm going to deal with this, this thing forever. And it's just part of it. And I've kind of gotten used to it. And it's not, it's not that bad. But nobody's seen it, right? Now, this is what's beautiful is Nehemiah comes in and he sees it. And the explosion lets you know just how bad it is that you might not think it's that bad. And maybe in your mind right now, you're thinking of that thing. I mean, I certainly was. What happens in these moments? I feel like you start to sweat a little bit because the Holy Spirit starts to go, hey, we're now seeing the, 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 the lights going on and there's a little Tobiah in there. And you know what that is. You know what that sin is, what that thing is that, that is not supposed to be there. And the question is, is have you even created an opportunity for somebody to see that and to, to, to dive in and, and know about your life? How do, we, how do we come into church? Is it all smiles and, hey, brother, how are you doing? Let's hug it out. And well, you know, the one minute when Dave says to hug it out, we're going to hug it out. But do we, do we allow people into our world? And do, we, do we tether ourselves to the kingdom of God in a way that we don't wander? So I want to look at three, three ways that we're all prone to wander. Um, the first one is drifting from biblical community. Drifting from biblical community. So the first thing that you see is, um, and leave that up there. Um, things had changed. Like the biblical community was, was in place, but they had removed the things of God out of the house of God, and they had moved in one of the enemies. Now, for Eliashib, he didn't think, he's thinking, this is one of my relatives, you know, he's all right. He's, you know, he was, he was, it's been, it's been 12 years, man. We got a forgiveness should be on the, you know, we should be able to, you know, let this guy have, but slowly but surely over 12 years, he doesn't just get forgiveness. I guess he gets to have a house in the house of God and the things that mattered, you know, didn't matter anymore. And there's this exchange of how people thought about the community of God. And it made me think about you know, in the, the 70s and 80s, people, and this is no knock, I don't know that we're, you know, we're supposed to be um, here at OCC five times a week. Um, you should be out sharing and caring uh, for other people and bringing the gospel. But, you know, in the 80s, um, it was church, the average church attendance was, anybody, can anybody guess what the average church attendance was? How many times a week? Three. Three. Four, you were religious. Um, I'm kidding. But three, I mean, that was the average, three times a week. I mean, twice on Sundays. I mean, it could be twice on Sundays and Wednesday night, right? I mean, that was kind of the deal. 
And it, who, who can guess what is considered an average church attender or average church attendance now in 2023? Anybody? Twice a month. Yep. One to two times a month. Now, I'm not throwing any stones. Life has changed. Culture's changed. But it made me think, is there a value that we moved out and other things that moved in that have propagated that? And I'm not going to drop bombs on your schedule and what, what, how you live your life and how you run your family and what's most important to you. But church certainly has become, in the last 20 years, more of an attendance type of thing. We come and we attend church, and we, we don't really belong to church. Because when you belong to church, it becomes woven into the fabric of who you are. It becomes a part of who you are. And we, we, here we've said it many times, that maybe why we stay small. Because if you're here for a while and you're attending, eventually it's going to be uncomfortable for you. Because the, the, the idea here, and we'll say it over and over again, church isn't a place you attend. It's a family where you belong. It's why we call it a house. You don't attend the house. My kids don't attend the house. It's why I don't necessarily, we call our church gatherings, services. A service is what you do when you go to dinner. I went to dinner the other night and I did not get good service. I won't tell you where it is because I don't want to, you know, hate on them, but it just wasn't good. I mean, you got to bring the drinks quick. Like that's the one thing you don't have to cook it. You don't have to cook a drink. Just bring it right away. Like that is the cardinal sin. If you're going to do good service, I'm going to be happy. Like, Hey, bam, bam, bam. Drinks are all here. And now we can wait. I mean, all the guys, I mean, we got some guys in the restaurant biz or in the, the bar business here that know, like bring the drinks right away. You don't have to cook it. There's no reason, but that's service. And Hey, sometimes we come into church that way, don't we? Because church has become something that it used to be this, this family where we hold one, one another together because we're in Christ, the glue of the gospel that, that Christ shed his blood for us. And it binds us together. But it's become a service. That's the service industry, right? I go and you don't do it right and I go somewhere else. Kids ministry it in the way that we like it. They don't have the youth ministry that we have. They do some things that we don't necessarily you know, it's, it's, you know, they're not quite there yet. Maybe we'll go here because it's a little more comfortable for our schedule. We'll do these things. Or, hey, I don't feel, feel like I can, it's easy for me to kind of drift, drift, drift in and drift out at this place. Here it's a little tougher. I'm a little, you know, being known is not necessarily a, 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 a bonus for our family. Like walking in and people going, where have you been? Not necessarily good. So we're going to roll somewhere else. Right? The value, the attendance value sometimes is, is on a high level for, for us because we're like, I like to attend. I like to just kind of cruise in and I want to be served. But, but the reality is, is what, what needs to happen and the way that we need to operate is we need to belong. And the reason why, and we can, we can look at it in here in, in, in that verse 8, is Without each other, we drift. In verse 8, it says, And I was very angry. Nehemiah was, was frustrated. Now, I did use the ESV, which is probably, it uses some of the original language, which is harsh. Um, and there's no knock on the NIV, but even the NIV 1984 pre removed some of the language. I mean, this guy beats people in this passage. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. He, he gets into, he's like pulling hair, 
and smacking people, telling people, I'm going to lay hands on you. I mean, he gets pretty rowdy. And a lot of that language gets removed in the NIV and, and is said differently. And I'm not saying the translation's bad, but it isn't a direct translation from the root language. The ESV is, and I'm going to just tell you, he's, he was very angry. He threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah. And I was reading the commentary, and it says, in, in some translations, it says grieved. And that actually is a good word for it. He was grieved. He wasn't just angry. His heart, he was, he was really sad. And they said, this is why. It grieved him because it reflected so badly on Eliashib, a man who was a spiritual leader in Israel and those around him. And this is it. It showed that Eliashib was blind to a problem area. There was also no one around him who could confront him with the problem. You see, without one another, we, we tend to keep sins as pets. Like without each other, we keep the thing that might kill us as a pet. And over time, that's kind of the way that it becomes. I mean, C.S. Lewis calls it the, the, the lizard. Uh, it's interesting. It's, he has this, in The Great Divorce, he talks about this, you know, this lizard that convinces him that he's not, you know, it's fine that I'm here. Don't, don't mess with me. I'm, I'm good. And it's his pet sin. But I love the way that I read this in, in Desiring God. Uh, that sin is not a pet to be walked several times a week. It is a lion, a wolf, a bear. It bites, it hunts, it will. It attacks as a piranha. It is, a restless, it is restless and evil, lit ablaze with the fires of hell. Sin cannot be trained, bridled, domesticated. Cannot be rescued, rehabilitated, or redeemed. Sin will never wear a collar, stick to its kennel, or cease clawing at your throat. And if you don't have somebody that's in your life. And when you, when you attend church and the, the value of church is down and the rest of life's value is up, because that's the exchange of all the things that got thrown out of the house of God by Eliashib and he moved in Tobiah. It's, it's when we have a low value of, of the community of believers, when we have a low value of, of, of biblical community, then all of a sudden you, you've left a big blind spot as you're driving around. It's called sin. And, and even if you recognize it, uh, we, we tend to put a collar around it and walk it around saying it's, it's going to be fine. I'll just, I'll just try to maintain this. I'll try to keep it at bay. And I could insert a bunch of stuff here, and I was going to. I was going to go down the list and make you all sweat and feel terrible. But I'm not going to. You can do that on your own. We know what those things are. God's told you what those things are. And you can't, you cannot navigate that on your own. Yes, you need to have a sit down with you and Jesus, but belonging to the community of faith is where it's, and this isn't to, so somebody can come and drop a guilt bomb on you. It's for them to go, yeah, I've struggled too. Let's, we can get through this together. We can work on this together. And when you're down and I'm up, I'm, I'm coming down into the pit to pull you out. We need, we need one another. We don't want to drift from biblical community. It's why we want fight clubs. I love this. this is one of those passages in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 19. It says, I, this is when he, he blew up because of the Sabbath. And he's like, we got to straighten things out. Um, he invites all of the leaders back in. The Levites, the worship leaders who weren't getting paid, by the way. You don't want to do that. We always want to bring the worship team's breakfast. It's always important. You, you want to pay them. Don't throw that out. It's an important aspect. Um, but he stationed some of the, the servants at the gate after he kind of straightened everything out, cleared out the temple. He turned over tables. Again, another shadow of Jesus to come in Nehemiah. We've seen several in this series. He turns over the table, says, what are, what are we doing? 
do we not have any regard for holiness? And so he brought all this stuff back in for the Sabbath, and then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I love that. I will lay hands on you. I mean, I thought about that. That should be in our church covenant, you know? I'm kidding. But what you want is a brother or sister that'll fight for you. Because that's what's happening. They're guard, he, he's like, I want you to guard the gate. And then he goes outside the gate and says, hey, I'll take you down. I will take you down. I think about prayer night. I was like, there's people contending at the gate at prayer night. They're there praying for people to be healed, but they're also praying that the enemy doesn't take me down, Dave down, the leaders down, you down, because he wants to. He wants to. And that's not, that's not attending church. That's belonging to a family. That, that's biblical community that he's reinstating. Like we see, I, see we, I read this passage the first time through and I'm like, gosh, this is violent. <laughs> um, but then I begin to see, no, this is a guy that, that in his brokenness and in his sin, God's at the forefront and he's contending for this biblical community that he knows, he knows is a life or death situation. And for us, I think we've, we've lost a little of that in our culture, in our, our world, that it's life and death. We're here not just to hear a good sermon. I mean, sometimes we evaluate church and it's, it's you know, the music's good and that guy's funny. This is a place we can. And we get the rest of our biblical food and podcasts online, the things that we can read. And you can, I, I encourage you to go to those things, but you cannot, and I've said it many times, content is no substitute for community, ever. It, will ne- it just won't do it. It will not do it. Because we need to have people that are looking. And I got blind spots. And I don't know what they are. That's why they're blind spots. Right? I need people in my life. I've got dudes in my life that I can I meet with regularly. I can sit down with and say, hey man, you need to pray for me because this is what's going on in my life right now. Here's where my struggles are. Here's where my temptations are. I know some of you that's uncomfortable. It's like, the pastor's tempted? Yes. Yes. Do I struggle with sin? Yes, absolutely. The enemy is, is, is waiting for me to put a collar on it and tote it around and invite it into my house. And I, I, can't, I can't do this on my own. I need y'all. I need, I need people at the gate. I need somebody that's, that, that, that will go to the enemy and say, I will lay hands on you and take you down. In the name of Jesus. It's what we need. Biblical community. I was watching uh, something the other day. Uh, I was out uh, surfing this last, last while. I was at the poles and a, a friend of mine was out surfing. And he had somebody else's kid. His, his, uh, his friend was down with his other two kids um, surfing with them and having a good time. And he, he saw uh, his daughter um, kind of in a spot where she was drifting and not in a good, good spot to find surf. And he just went over there and just kind of took over like substitute dad and started pushing her into waves, making sure she was catching her, like just bringing her back into a space where she could enjoy the day, right? And I just sat there and I just thought, man, that is awesome. Like somebody else's dad, friend, this is my, his, his friend's, you know, probably 150, 200 yards away with, with his boys. And here she's out there just kind of floundering around. 
And he comes to the rescue and starts pushing into ways. And I just think, man, that, that, that has happened to, to me here at Ocean City Church, where I have not been able to be present, uh, and people have been the third adult in my kid's life and spoken the gospel over my kids at OCC students. Um, and it's what we need. We need somebody that's contending in our world for us, for our families, for our people. And we, we need to cease being a service industry and come together. And we gather. This is our staging area. This is our anchor point, right? We need an anchor point so that we don't wander. And then there's a bunch of people in here to be the supervision, to go, hey, man, what's going on over there? We need these things. We are still the children of God. God's probably looking down, and in some ways, he's smiling, going, yes, they need supervision. I've given them, and they need information. I've given them the word of God, right? I've given them supervision. I've given them each other. And that leads me to the second thing, drifting from biblical authority. Nobody wants to hear, uh, this, is not, this is not what, people don't come to church for biblical authority, do they? They come for the music and they come for, you know, we're going to get some good preaching. But nobody comes to, to submit to, to biblical authority. But it's part of it. And it's one of the problems that was, was found here in verse 10. It says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had been given to them. In other words, they had been given away. The, the things that belonged to the priests and the people leading the house of God, the worship leaders, the singers um, who did the work, they, they had fled to their own field. They said, hey, we give up. These people won't submit to authority. In fact, they're taking all of the stuff that we need here to have our church gatherings. They've taken it all away. And Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. When he found out, he brought the leadership back. He brought the authority back in and said, I'm putting you guys back in charge of these people who have gone a little bit crazy, who have lost their mind slowly. They, don't, they didn't even know because the time had passed. Because drifting and wandering from God doesn't, it's not like all of a sudden we're like, man, yesterday I was in church. Today I've got a heroin problem. Like, you don't, it doesn't go down that road, right? It's a slow drift where we find ourselves and we turn around and we wonder at the moment when we finally wake up eating the pig slop, we, we're like, how in the world did I get here? Now, there's a pathway. There's a pathway, but many times it's that we have no concept of what it look, looks like to have biblical authority. Now, I wanted to, I really want to preach this section because it sounds self, self-serving. Like, I want to pretend like I'm at somebody else's church and there's somebody else that's the pastor and I'm doing this for his benefit because um, I don't want this to sound like, does that make sense? Like, I, I, it's what I would say if I was going to River City Church, if I was going to, to Beach Church, I, I, would, I would plead with those people for that pastor and for that team because I know what they walk through and I know what the Bible says about biblical authority and I know it's hard to preach. So I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to preach it anyway, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to preach it as though I am somebody else's pastor coming to you to tell you what this is all about. Does that make sense? You get me. It's clever, ain't it? My wife came up with that. <laughs> so our culture, when it comes to biblical authority, it's, it's one of those things that we don't like even saying that, like knowing that there's a group of, of elders over this church that are in authority over the people that are anchors in the church. Even just saying those words makes people uncomfortable because we have our own baggage with authority. 
We've got our own baggage with how people have been. And of course, there's stuff in the, the, the press. There's podcasts about the abuse of authority. There's, hey, newsflash, there is sinful men that God has put in charge of the church with Jesus at the head. There, there, there is. So I'm not, I'm not making small the things that are broken about leadership and things that have happened. But in Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says this. I'm going to let this sit there for a moment because it's, it's going to tell us something about our heart. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And I'll get to the rest of it. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's uncomfortable for me to just say. How does it make you feel? Now, think about how it makes you feel, and that might tell us something about our heart and our resistance to authority, that we don't like it, or how we've engaged in church. Maybe that's the very reason that you've not become an anchor, or you're not, that you attend and that you don't belong, because you, you, you've got, like, I've, I'm a preacher's kid, or I'm, I've, I grew up in church, or I went to a Christian school. I know all the stuff. I've listened to all the podcasts. There's nothing that Derek's going to say, Dave's going to say, Dan's going to say, any of the elders are going to say that I haven't read, that I haven't heard, that I can't research on Gospel Coalition, that I can't find out for myself. I read probably 18 times more than they do. I've got this going on. I've got that going on. I'm going to put myself at this position. There's no reason for me. I'm going to be in charge of my family. I'm going to do what's best for my family, which isn't biblical, by the way. Read Philippians 2. The idea, I'm going to do what's best for my family. We're supposed to regard other people higher than ourselves. If we're going to be humble as Jesus was humble, then what are we doing? We're laying aside our own needs in order that the, the greater community is served. Now, that makes people feel uncomfortable right there. So when we look at this, and we can continue to read this, it says, Obey which that word, if you break it down, means trust. Don't and it actually has bound to it in the Greek or in the, in the, in, yeah, in the Greek that you wouldn't like obey. Trust, don't hassle, be nice to. That's what I, I found in that translation. Like obey, like don't be a pain um, to your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Remember that your leaders... They, they, they have been charged with something that's heavy on their shoulders. And they're going to have to give an account for the way that they led, that they did it as servants, not as overlording it on you. That they were the people that would, would carry things for you. They were the people that would ask for your advice, that they would be the people that would humble themselves before you. They would get lower than you. They would do the jobs that nobody wants to do because they would rather serve than make you feel like they're lording something over you. That's what they will give an account for. It goes on to say, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's one of those things that as, as we join a church, as we're a part of something, that we're coming together and we're asking. I just had somebody recently just come and say, hey, I was unsure about this that was that, that in the way that you run this particular thing in the church. And I was so appreciative because there's very few people that do it. And it's something that became a discussion. And it's not necessarily that everything you bring up and say, hey, I don't know that this is the right way to do it. But you know what? Every one of those things over the years that people have come to the elders and said, hey, hey, you should think about this. Or maybe this is something that you should do. I can tell you there's people in here that testify and say they literally changed based on information and humility. 
being told, hey, this might not be the best way to go about this. The church has literally changed because of those things. So my, my challenge to you would be, if you've got a problem with the authority in the church, come to that authority. Or go to another church where you can trust the authority. I mean, that's my, my suggestion. If, if you can't trust the leaders enough to be a part of the church or be an anchor in the church, to be a, be a member of the church, to belong instead of attend, then go somewhere where you can. Be somewhere where, where that is possible. Last thing, and where we'll land, is drifting from biblical identity. And these actually kind of roll backwards, because I think once you, when you drift from biblical identity, all of a sudden that's going to propagate launching out of authority. And then when you launch out of authority, you are going to definitely not be really a part of biblical community. This, in many ways, is the most important one. Verse 23, it says, In those days I saw the Jews had married women from Ashod. This is uncomfortable, but I'll get, get around it. Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashad. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Now, this passage in Nehemiah chapter 13 in general has been used to propagate racism. Um, it has been used for all kinds of evil. Like it's, it's unbelievable, unconscionable that you could take uh, the Bible and do that. But many people have done it over centuries, over millennia um, to, to do things and to satisfy the flesh and use the Bible to do it. Um, but that's not, I don't, it's, it's hard for me if you read the whole context of what's, what's happening here to w- walk into that. Because what Nehemiah is doing here and what the people of God were doing at the time was the separation really had nothing to do with race, but it had to do with the enemies of God. These, these weren't, this wasn't, in fact, a lot of these, the Moabites looked a lot like Jews. I mean, I'm just, they, it wasn't about, they, they all were from the same region. It was, this was about the enemies of God and the people and the cultures that were trying to in, remove the Jewish culture and the God-fearing culture and institute their pagan culture. So this is not about like how racist the Jews were back in the day. This is about inviting into your lives cultures that are adamantly opposed to the things of God. Inviting into your lives cultures that are adamantly opposed to the things of God. And I think it, it, it kind of lends itself to, okay, so do we hang out with other people? I mean, this is like, do, you know, do we homeschool or do we send them to public school? And I think there's good cases for both. But like, how do we, as Christians, what is it, how do we, how are we in the world and not of the world? I think that's the way that people like to say it. For them, it was about a culture, like that culture was adamantly opposed to the things of God. And what happened over time is their identity as the people of God drifted away and their identity as a, a pagan, sinful culture began to drop into the, the, the framework. And the high point was at the beginning, I mean, the, the, where, where it's the worst is what Nehemiah was saying, to the point where the enemy of God literally was invited into the house of God. All the things of God were thrown out. He's like, that's, that's how bad it got because of the way that they had integrated and allowed themselves to be taken in by that culture. Now, does that mean God doesn't like other cultures? No. In fact, Ruth was a Moabite. Like she was invited to God, I mean, in the very line of Christ. So this was not about people or race. It was about the enemies of God. It was about the people that were, and God loved, look, these are all image bearers of the king, right? These are all image bearers of God. 
but it was about people that were adopting and aligning with cultures that were adamantly opposed to God. And when you hang out with a group of people, and again, does that mean you don't hang out with with non-Christians? No, absolutely not. That doesn't mean that. But when you take advice from, somebody told me the other day, like I, I, they, they go to counseling and we are big on counseling. We, if you need counseling, we have a great count, tons of great counseling resources here. Um, and they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't like to go to, to Christian counselors. And I'm like, so that's the one that you're going to, you're going to, you're going to share your most intimate details of your life with a non-Christian counselor. And again, no knock on them. They don't know Jesus. And my hope is that they do. I want to treat them with love. I want to have them over for dinner. I want to be, you know, be as gracious and loving to that person as I possibly can. Paul would say, I want to be all things to all people that I might save some. I want to get in the world of the people that don't know Jesus so that they might know Jesus. But are you going to take advice for them? Are you going to be led by them? Are you going to take your heart out of your chest in counseling and lay it before somebody that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't value the things of God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because that's the, that's the beginning of the slow drift away from the things of God. You are in Christ, your identity. It says 27 times in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul's trying to let them know, you are different than them. And not better, you're just different because you were dead in your sins and trespasses and now you're alive in Christ. You are in Christ. Yes, you should look different. Doesn't mean that you don't hang out with people that don't know Jesus that don't value Jesus. No, you do, in hopes that they will see how you've changed, see the grace and mercy that God extended you because we're all sinners at the end of the day. I mean, the, 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 the playing field at the, the foot of the cross is level. There's no, we're not better than anyone else, but you are different. You are different. And you attach yourself, you, you, you are led by somebody over time, saturated with their lifestyle. You become them. I remember I used to go hang out at my friend's house. He was so so redneck. We'd hang out in Havana. We would shoot cow turds with shotguns. I mean, that's redneck. And I would come home. I would come home. I got a little bit of a southern draw anyway, but man, it would be, it'd be really going. By the time I got back, so man, we went out there, got a shotgun, and we shot a cow turd. It was really good. My, my mom's like, what in the world has happened to you? I've been indoctrinated by a redneck. Your identity is in Christ. He says it 27 times in Ephesians. You are in Christ. And he wants you to celebrate it. You've received every spiritual blessing in Christ, which means the power, the righteousness, the inheritance, all of it, seated in the heavenly realms right next to Jesus. Yes, you are different. That love that's inside of you because you're in Christ is the very thing that they will see. Becoming just like them is never gonna be the strategy. When the Apostle Paul says, I wanna empathize, I wanna be in those places with them, it doesn't mean that he, he succumbs to their way of life. And that's exactly what happened to these people is they lost their identity and I think we can often lose ours. And the main problem, you know, when we get lost and we need an anchor point, the church, we need supervision, with each other and the authority that comes with with the church. But more than anything, we have to remember our identity. That every single one, as different as you people are, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, we have been brought together. That the dividing wall has been torn down because of the blood of Christ. It's one of the most powerful things, biblical identity. Like, don't forget 
who you are. My, my insecurities always, they always start with me drifting from the, the reality that I am a loved son of God. That I have a father that was willing to give up his son and pour out his blood for me. And he's, he's more powerful than any king, famous person, more beautiful than any movie star or rock star. He's the king of the universe and he loves me and gave his life for me. And so we come and the way that we find our back home, way back home from wandering is to remember. And Jesus was so smart. He said, we're gonna keep doing this over and over again until you see me again. He says in his word, he says, I'm gonna, right in front of you, I'm gonna take this bread. He was with his friends right before he gave his life away. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. They didn't even understand what that meant. And then, then he took the cup. He says, this is a cup, my blood. This is a new covenant. The system, the temple system, that, that's the past. There's a, there's a new that was all pointing. It was a shadow of a reality that would come and it's now here, the blood of Christ, the covenant poured out in my blood. Every time you drink this cup, every time you eat this bread, you're gonna, you're gonna remember the anchor point. You're gonna remember how to find your way home. You're gonna remember who you are. It's not about what you do, how you act. It's about who you are in Christ. So we're gonna to come to the table today and, and in your mind, this is not just a, a routine, some liturgical thing that we do. This is put here for a reason that we would sit in, in for, for a moment and that we would recount and remember who he is, that his blood was poured out, that his body was broken for you. And if you're wondering if somebody is willing to go fight for you, willing to chase you down, willing to go to war for you, willing to die for you. There's no better reminder than this table that there was blood spilled, there was a body that was beaten, and it was the Savior that is chasing you down even now to bring you home. Give your life to Him. As the servers come, and if y'all would go ahead and come up here, this table is for followers of Jesus. And I always say it's, it is exclusively inclusive. People always say Christianity is so exclusive. It's not. God's desire is that all would be saved. It's just one way through the cross of Jesus Christ. Anybody's welcome. And maybe you've made that decision today and this could be your first communion. But if not, and you're still in that place of wondering and doubting and trying to figure it out, this is a table for believers. It is. But maybe you've made that decision, maybe over the last week, maybe over the last year. And I would love to be witness to your first communion here at Ocean City Church. And many people have made this day that, that day for them. So I'm gonna pray over the table. And as you come, these guys will kind of lead you through it. Just grab the bread, dip it in and, and take communion. You can stay in your seat and pray for a moment. You can come right up and line up. It'll take us a little while uh, to do communion today. God, we just thank you. Um, for this table. We thank you for how powerful just the image and thought of your body broken and your blood poured out, what that does for us, how it brings us home every time, how it snatches us from our wandering to realize that there's no better place to be than in your presence and with you. In Jesus' name.